I would invite you to take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Peter's letter in the end of the New Testament. We're looking this morning at 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 16, and we will work our way through 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10. A friend of mine named Charlie is a musician. He loves to write and play music. He is a guitarist and, and loves that. And he said the other day in a conversation we were having that sometimes he will hear a riff or he'll hear a line and he'll jot it down, put it onto a piece of paper, thinking, I'm going to get back to that. I'm going to make a song out of that. And he said, told me I'm notorious for having slips of paper throughout my house and my car. And I look at it later on and say, I really have no idea what I was thinking when I wrote this down. Have you ever taken a note or written something down that was important and stuck it someplace and maybe a day or a week later you got back to it and then thought, what in the world made this so important that I had to write it down? Peter this morning is arguing to his readers that there are things that you have to connect with and stay connected with. In fact, the message of the gospel is such that we should continually be be engaged with it and learning with it and grounded in it, in our faith as it's been revealed. He continues to emphasize that, that this gospel message has an eyewitness. This truth of the gospel has evidence. This truth of the gospel has an effectual nature to change those it comes in contact with. This grace is not a fleeting tale or a myth Those are corruptions, and those are are not based in real historic fact. But he challenges us this morning to compare God's truth to the heresies. Realize that those heresies are things that the Lord will judge and punish those who embrace and cling to falsehood. You know, even in safe settings, falsehood can corrupt the mind. Is it no wonder that in a fresh food market, they still have waste. Please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more, the prophetic word, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and become, because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous, the unrighteous, under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Again, let's look to him briefly in prayer. Lord, this morning I plead with you that you would guard our hearts and minds Focus us upon your revelation. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock. O Lord, our redeemer. For it's in the name of Christ Jesus that I pray. Amen. A pastor by the name of Stephen uh, Blaginski starts every church membership class with a jar of beans on the table in front of the class. He asks the students to guess how many beans are in the jar. And then on a big pad of paper, he writes down everyone's answers. Then, next to those estimates, he asks them to make another list. And of that list, he asks them, what is your favorite song? When all these lists are complete, he then tells them the actual number of beans in the jar. Everyone, of course, looks at their own scrap of paper to see how many they had guessed to see which one was closest. And he asked the whole class, which one is closest to being right? And they revealed that number and that person to them. Then he said, now, of the list of your favorite songs, which one of those is closest to being right? Well, of course, everyone um, stands and says, there's no right or wrong, it's just someone's own personal preference as far as what my favorite song is or not. Well, you see, Pastor Pojinski holds a PhD in philosophy from Notre Dame. And at that point, he asks them, when you decide what to believe in in your faith, is it more like guessing the number of beans in the jar or picking your favorite song? He says and reports, and he told this story to a friend, that almost to a person, they say, picking my faith is more like picking the song that's my favorite. Of course, his friend and the pastor were shocked at that. Then he says, well, do you allow them to become members in your church? Do you even take them any step further? The pastor smiled and said, not before I argue them out of it. Picking our favorite song might be different from you than it is for me. Our preferences, our background, our styles are completely different. And what you like is different from what I like. 
But whether the truths of Scripture are true or not, and whether I believe in Christ based upon historic evidence, upon revelation that God has given, is not based upon a whim of what I like or who I am or who you are. It's based upon historical evidentiary truth. That's what we base our faith on. Not what we like, not what we hope for. Peter again reminds us, truth matters. Therefore, we must know what we believe and why we believe it begins Peter's uh, story this morning, or in text this morning, begins with the appearance of Christ's glory. Peter has just said, I will do everything I can to make you remember. That was the last statements he made in the text I preached a couple of weeks ago. Whether it's in life or death, I want you to recall what you've been taught. But then he goes on to say, because what you've been taught is trustworthy. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of Christ. Our message is not grown out of, of a cleverly devised story. Now that's the same accusation that the church and that the scriptures are receiving today. Isn't it ironic that there's not a whole lot of new challenge to the word? Oh, that was just the disciples' experience. Skeptics say the disciples created a cleverly devised myth, that they fabricated something around this person of Jesus that that seemed to make some sort of sense, and and that's what we have today. And because it's been 2,000 years and entrenched in historic Christianity, that it must not be challengeable. I'm sorry, that it must be challengeable. And yet Peter is saying, the myth is not based in historic evidence. A myth doesn't have an anchor somewhere in history, but Christ was a real person. We saw him. We witnessed him. This is not a myth because it's based on fact. What fact is that, you might ask? Verse 17, For we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw how he changed. Now it's interesting, Peter could have picked any number of accounts in Jesus' life. He could have chosen any number of things that would have been a challenge. In John chapter 7, verses 45 and 46, the temple guards are sent to arrest Jesus because he's making a nuisance of the temple worship. And yet when they come back to the Sanhedrin, their response is, no one ever spoke like this man before. No one's ever taught like him before. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus being asleep in the back of a boat. And the Sea of Galilee comes and, and a storm is whipped up. And all of the disciples are afraid in one sense or another. And yet when they wake Jesus up, he stands up. And he tells the storm to stop and the water to be still. And to a person in that boat, their response was captured in Mark 4, verse 41. Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Christ calls Peter. He then Uh, tells Peter to cast his nets into that same sea. And into those nets it seemed as if fish jumped in. 
uh, Simon Peter had to call his friends and his co-workers, James and John, help, help me gather these nets in. And when Peter was done, when they pulled the, the fish onto the seashore, Peter jumped out and fell upon his knees and said to Jesus, depart from me because I am a sinful man. Jesus was not like anyone else that they'd ever experienced. So when he calls, Jesus calls Peter, James, and John up onto that hill. And as they are talking, he is changed. You know the story of the transfiguration. It is a a marvelous account given to us in Matthew 17. Jesus is metamorphosized. He is transformed. The, The image of glory not only shines from him as a star that catches the light of the sun, it comes from within him. The very clothes that he was wearing became whiter than bleach. He showed the glory of God from within. The only point in scripture that we also have that is when Moses wanted to see God's glory. God put him in the crest of a rock and God passed in front of him and showed Moses the hind quarters of God. And when Moses came down to the people, he showed from the reflected light of God's glory so brightly that in Genesis it tells us they had to wear a veil to interact with the people. But this wasn't a reflection for Christ. This wasn't something coming from something else. This was Christ's glory. This was his deity. This was God in human form revealing himself to Peter, James, and John. Mark tells us they were so afraid, and I love Peter. He must have been a a blumbering kind of guy. All of a sudden, he's thinking, it's good for us to be here. I'm terrified. Lord, let's set up tents. We can stay here forever. And when they looked up, Jesus was by himself. And the prophet Elijah and the lawgiver Moses, who had been sent to minister to Christ, were gone. So when when Peter is saying, we were there We saw it. We witnessed it. For he received honor and glory from God the Father. And then verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on that mountain. Oh, but Peter, isn't it nice? That's your story. That's your perception. That's your subjective view. And if I were there, I probably would have seen something different, says the modern skeptic. It's all made up. It's all a myth. But ironically, Peter says there's more strength here. There's more here. All of the synoptic gospels list that event on Christ, uh, his transformation, because God took on human form. Peter reminds his his, uh, readers that the trustworthiness of the scripture is based upon Jesus upon his life, and upon the fact that he came to live in this world, to give his own life for payment for your sin and for my sin, and that he calls us by his grace and providence into a relationship with himself. God wants you to know him. He is calling you to him. Not because you or I are great people. Not because we've done so much for him but because he loves you, he created you, and he knows you. In a court of law, it is important to recognize that variations in testimony do not mean that a lie is being told. 
when there are differences in accounts in the New Testament, yes, it might be a subjective version. It might be something varied from a different point of view, a different vantage point. But all of Scripture coalesces into a single story of who Jesus is. The appearance of Christ's glory gives us evidence that he is worthwhile following. But there's also the assurance of Christ's glory. The subjective is one part, but what about the objective? Look at verse 19. Peter says, we have something more sure. We have the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention. We have this more confirmation because the prophecy of the Old Testament pointed to the work of Christ. And in every instance, in every case, that was fulfilled. Prophecy that was uttered hundreds, if not thousands of years before the life of Christ was fulfilled in his life. And many of those things (laughs) were things that Jesus himself could never have controlled. Where he was born, where he died and was buried... The, the nature of, of who betrayed him. We know God sovereignly put those together, but humankind can't arrange those kind of things. And yet, all of those and many more were promised. Peter says this voice, this prophetic voice, is like a lamp shining in the darkness. See, I believe Peter knew his scriptures. So when he goes and talks about that lamp shining in the darkness, I hear the words of Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And yet until a future event, until this day dawns, as he says, in our hearts, these are symbolic natures and, and pictures that Peter is painting. The, the, dawn, the day dawns, that the morning star rises. He's pulling from across the scriptures to again show how all this prophetic word points to Christ. Hear the words from Numbers 24. There's a star that shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 12, night, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. As the morning star arises, the writer of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 says, Not neglecting to meet together is is the habit of some, but engaging one another and all the more as you see the day coming near. Finally, in Revelation 22 and verse 16, Jesus himself says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Peter is saying these prophetic words that you should pay attention to, they are a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It's a glimpse. We could spend weeks delving into those. But Peter is saying all of the word. All of the, the, the prophecies point to one person and his work. What is this that has to rise in the hearts of believers? What is the morning star that's rising? Peter is talking to the, about the second return of Christ. But that's a public event. Is that something that happens in private? No, the scripture tells us that all will see when Christ comes again. So why does he say it rises in my heart? Again, as we looked from Revelation, uh, from Romans to Revelation in those passages, it was a growing understanding. 
It was a, an encouragement to know that Jesus will return, regardless of my circumstance, regardless of the difficulty of my life today. I know Christ knows me. Christ is coming for me. Christ has prepared for me. That growing light that continues to encourage me as a believer, as a follower in Christ, must continue to grow until I see the objective return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. Knowing this first, Peter says in verse 20, that no prophecy, past or New Testament, no prophecy comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy didn't come because men dreamed something up, Peter says. It's not just because they thought they would write something down, but God moved. God declared in past what did occur in their future so that Jesus' life would be evident. So David can write in 2 Samuel 23, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Paul himself writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God breathed out and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. This word that we hold on to, that the world says is just a myth and it's not trustworthy, time after time after time, again, it shows itself to be very trustworthy, very truthful, very evident. And Peter is saying, don't forget, don't forget to, to dig and to, de- to be able to give evidence for what's true. An elderly man once asked Henry Ironside, I will not go unless I know that I'm saved or else know that it's hopeless to seek to be sure that I am. I want a definite witness, something about which I cannot be mistaken. Pastor Ironside replied, Well, suppose you had a vision of an angel who told you that all of your sins were forgiven. Would that be enough to rest on? The elderly man said, yes, I do think that would be true. That would be sufficient for me. But then Ironside continued, and he said, well, suppose that on your deathbed, Satan himself came and said, I was that angel that was transformed to deceive you. What would you say then? Well, the man was speechless. But Ironside continued, and he told him, God has given us something more dependable than the voice of an angel. He has given us his son who died for our sins. And it testified in his own word that if we trust in him, that our sins will be gone. Ironside read 1 John 5.13, So that you may know that you have eternal life. Upon this, he said, is that not enough? God has written you a heavenly letter that is confirmed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, is that not sufficient for you to know that you are in Christ and a believer? That gave that man enough rest to be able to see that the future that was coming didn't have a darkness to it. But he could trust that Jesus was faithful, that God's revelation was true. Scripture regularly encouraged believers to search the Scriptures. 
We hear about the Bereans who were commended for their study of God's word. But as Peter emphasizes that we cannot interpret scripture in isolation for our own purposes, we also um, know that the church itself isn't the final authority, as, as uh, the Catholic church might say. So where's the balance? How am I supposed to know? There's a danger in extreme individualism as well as an extreme authoritarianism. But consider the context of what Peter was saying. God entrusts his revelation to his people as a body. Therefore, interpreting the scriptures should involve the fellowship of believers. It happens as we get together, maybe in small groups, maybe in Sunday school, maybe in Sunday worship, maybe in one-on-one discipleship or conversations. Maybe over a a meal or just a cup of coffee. But together the Bereans search the scriptures. It is here, it is within this fellowship that we best understand and that 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 knowledge of the scripture can most uh, best occur. So that all the questions that we might have can be voiced and find answers. Because corruption will still find its way in. You heard that in the the text this morning, chapter 2 and verse 1. But false teachers also arose among the people, among Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. There were false prophets to the Old Testament Israel. They came up and they tried to redirect, to reinterpret, to change what God had declared. But Peter says to, to his readers, they will come. I think by implication, we can say that they have come and they're here today. But Peter recalls Christ's warning in Matthew 24, when Jesus answered them and said, See that no one lead you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. But in the second part of verse 1, Peter tells us, what their work is to introduce, to bring heresies, to even deny the master, the master who bought them. That means that heresy could come from from within. We must be iron sharpening iron. We must always be challenging one another to say, yes, but what does scripture teach? Yes, but what does the Bible say? Yes, but how has God showed that to us in his word? It's so easy for us to get run off into tangents. It's so easy for us to hold on to to something wrong that we believe might be right. It's our brothers and sisters in Christ that corral and correct and contain us, that shape and mold us so that we can find answers, so that we can learn truth, so that we can grow in our faith. Those who came from within and are now spewing heresy, Peter's not the only one who spoke of them. John speaks of them in his epistles. But what if Jesus had bought the price for them? How could they lose their salvation? I would say it's not the starting point that makes the determination. It's the destiny. Completing a journey is not about where we start from as much as it is about where we end up. If I'm here but I don't understand and truly don't embrace uh, the, the teachings of Scripture, I may go out that door. I may leave, but that doesn't mean I was ever truly in the faith. 
But as I submit myself to the leadership of the church, to the training and teaching of the church, as I allow the word of God to shape and mold me, as I submit myself to the teachings of Christ, it begins to shape and mold who I am. Peter goes through a whole litany in verses 4 through 10. It's, it's actually, if you look at your Bible, it's a single sentence. Deep breath at the beginning of it. But he's talking about the angels who weren't spared when they turned their back upon God. He's talking about uh, those in the ancient world in Noah's time who denied the righteousness that, Moses, that Noah preached. He's talking about those in Sodom and Gomorrah who, who took on lusts of the flesh in their own bodies. And Lot lived among them, but was called away from them. He's talking about all how God has, has judged the wicked, but how God has spared the righteous. God's love and care for his people maintains us, even in difficult and dark circumstances. The consequences of our life mean we must be driven to Scripture. We must know Christ. We must grow in that knowledge because it's faithful. It's true. I'm encouraged by the growth that I know is happening here in Owensboro. In talking with your session, and talking with Pastor John, and hearing reports of how you're growing in your faith, I encourage you to continue to do that. This is a great place to ask questions. To grow and to know who Christ is. To learn about who Jesus is. Remember in the, the shorter catechism, Question number three, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. This is a great learning tool. This is a great place to find where truth is. Encouragement in dark times, strength and faithfulness in in success, But realizing that even as we sang the hymn this morning, I don't bring anything to the table. What I have is by God's grace and mercy. Peter's call this morning is a challenge to compare truth and heresy. It's both before you in the world that we live in. Recognize how to identify it. To stand prayerfully against it. And to grow in your faith as you grow in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, it's easy to take our sights off of you. It's easy to get caught up in our day-to-day activities. But I pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for the righteousness that can only be found in your word. May we we learn and grow May we reflect you well, so that all of Owensboro would come and say, tell me about the Christ that you worship. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.